0: God, thank you for um, the sun this morning, thank you for um, this community, thank you for the opportunity to take time to, to think about you, um, to think about what it means to listen to you and to talk to you, um, thank you for the time to think about um, who you are and what that means for the way that we talk to you, and I pray that you will... Um, Help us to um, yeah, to discover new things um, or rediscover old things this morning. Amen. Uh, yeah, so I'm Rod, and uh, we're in the middle of a series on prayer. And um, a brief synopsis, we always do a synopsis, so we did. The first part of the series was interviewing various people in this um, community about their experience of prayer, and then the second Phase of this series has been looking at obstacles to prayer, uh, starting with things like the question of whether God even exists, whether God is good, and then um, moving from that into um, Jesus as um, a way of discovering what God is like and what kind of God we are praying to, and um, thinking about... Uh, this image that Shane introduced of of Jesus being the lens that we use to look at the various images of God that we carry um, inside us, God as Zeus, God as Santa, God as the absent father, God as whatever, um, that all of us have many strands to the image of God that we carry inside and that um, if we and not everyone here does, but if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then um, Jesus needs to be the lens through which we examine all of those strands of images of God inside us. Um, and uh, last week, this is, our, this is our, for those that are new, this is our icon that we keep coming back to in this series. It's the Last Supper, and it's the, uh, and John, the, the Apostle John, lying against um, Jesus' chest and um, Celtic tradition says that um, John heard the heartbeat of God and that this is like an image that we're seeking to keep coming back to through our series, that prayer is seeking to hear the heartbeat of God in all things. Um, I'll just press every button and eventually something will work. Can we just have the next one, Sam? Thanks. Um, so um, I was going to say last week, it was actually two weeks ago, um, Shane talked about this part of the Lord's Prayer and um, talked about what it reveals about God. Was anyone here a couple of weeks ago? Um, yeah, Shane was. He was speaking. Anyone remember what anything that Shane talked about? Put you on the spot, I know. Sam's doing some kung fu moves at the back. I don't know if that's relevant. Yeah. <laughs> um. oh. oh, yes?
1: Yeah. Um, we talked about how God is a very intimate way to bring in a prayer to the holiest of holies. And
0: how'd be your name but i can't remember yeah yeah well I, I listened to it- a, I listened to it a couple of days ago, so it's pretty fresh for me um, so i just because what I want to do today is like a companion piece to that talk, and it doesn't uh, it'll make well i'm not going to say it'll make no sense without it, but it'll make more sense in the context of what Shane said, so just a couple of couple of things that Shane talked about and talked about the fact that um, a lot of us pray to the God that we think we need and that when tragedy strikes, we want a God that will step in and make everything okay, a God that will rule by divine decree and um, an interventionist God that will put things right um, And obviously, when tragedy strikes, that's the God that we feel we need. But Shane suggested last week that that's not the God that Jesus reveals. Um, He quoted um, Greg Boyd, who's an uh, American teacher, saying that when God flexes God's muscles, it looks like Jesus on the cross. Um, So that what we see... In Jesus, and what we see in this prayer with Jesus saying, You know, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is this implicit acknowledgement that God's will is often not done on earth as it is in heaven, and that that is because God is not Zeus, God is not a God that um, coerces, but a God as. As Josh so beautifully articulated in that song that we started with, a God that draws things towards but doesn't coerce, a persuading God and not a coercing God. Um, But we also reflected on the fact that that Jesus is still, um, there is still hope in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that even though we don't have a God that coerces, um, again, as as Josh's song suggested, that that there is still this pull, there's this gravity, there's this this arc towards hope, towards healing, towards restoration uh, in history, and that um, and that that is the basis of Jesus' hope—not a God that that coerces in every moment, but a God that that draws all things towards the good, towards the beautiful. And that because of that, it is worth praying for God's will to be done. Um, Shane suggested that it's a sense of participation and not magic that we're talking about in this kind of prayer. Prayer inviting God into a relationship with us, joining God in what God is doing He talked about, again, referring to Greg Boyd, talked about magic prayer is prayer that benefits the practitioner, that benefits the prayer. Um, It's utilitarian, it's mechanistic. I think of it as prayer that turns God into an it, uh, into an object that can be manipulated, whereas biblical faith, biblical prayer is about cultivating a covenantal relationship with God that is built on mutual trust, that is faithful. So it's not relating to God as an it, but relating to God as a you. The, uh, the Jewish theologian Martin Buber talks about God as the thou, the you, that can never be an it. Um, and I think that's the reason why the Bible, as Shane said two weeks ago, the Bible so resists magic, because God refuses to be an it. God refuses to be a Zeus. Oh, that's page three, everyone. Uh, is that okay? Is that, is that a decent summary, Shane? Um, I guess the last thing that he talked about was just the. What an incredible act of will and what an act of numbing of the emotions is required to maintain a belief in a God who controls everything, uh, a God with whom everything is part of God's plan um, because the most um, abhorrent acts have to be included in that plan. Um, Instead, Shane said that loss of control is actually weaved through the narrative of Jesus' life Um, and that the, the great challenge of being a follower of Jesus, the great challenge of following the God that Jesus reveals is to work out how to process this lack of control and find out the hope that lies on the other side of it. So, As I said before, what I want to do this morning is to, um, to give a, a companion piece to that talk, Shane um, did the hard work, I guess, of, of sketching out a picture, and I, I guess I want to add some colour and some movement, some jazz hands perhaps. And do that by talking a little bit about my own story and uh, looking a bit at the Bible and reading a poem or two. So that's what we're going to be doing. Um, so I want to start by start? I want to start by talking about the God of my childhood. Um, so when I was a kid, my parents um, told me lots of stories about how faithful God was, um, always telling me stories about the ways that God had helped them and intervened to bring wonderful, unexpected, miraculous outcomes. Um, and I was brought up to expect that God was on our side. Uh, God was on side of my my family um, because we were Christians um, and and if I was faithful to God and lived as God wanted me to live then God would be faithful to me and things would basically work out. Um, And I I was told that God wouldn't always answer my prayers in the way I expected them to be answered. So I was told that but Um, this was because God was just wiser and smarter than me uh, and not because God wasn't in complete control. Um, So while things might not always work out in the way that I expected they would, everything that happened would be part of God's plan for me and everything would work out. And um, despite a few shaky years in my teens, uh, this kind of worked out up to my mid-20s. My life took lots of unexpected twists and turns, but it, but it all seemed to kind of work out. Um, it all seemed to be this kind of uh, progression of, of safety and everything being, being good and okay and moving from strength to strength. Um, uh, so my life was a little bit like Psalm 16, which I'm going uh, to get Tamsin to read for us now. You can stay there, Tamsin, I'll bring you the mic. We're not going to have it up on the screen, so you're going to have to listen. Imagine that.
2: The Psalm 16 of the Inclusive Bible. O God, keep me safe. You are my refuge. I said to Yahweh, you are my God. There is nothing good for me apart from you. The holy people of my land are wonderful. My greatest pleasure is to be with them. But those who rush after other gods will bring many troubles upon themselves. I will not take part in their sacrifices. I won't even speak the names of their gods. You, Yahweh, are all that I have. You are my food and drink. My life is safe in your hands. Within the boundaries you set for me, there are nothing but pleasant places. What a delightful inheritance I have. I praise Yahweh who guides me. Even at night my heart teaches me. I'm always aware of your presence. You're right by my side and nothing can shake me. My heart is happy and my tongue sings for joy. I feel completely safe with you because you won't abandon me to the grave. You won't let your loved one see decay. You show me the path of life. Your presence fills me with joy and by your side I find enduring pleasure.
0: I'm going to give you a chance to give some feedback and some reflections in a bit, but we'll just move on. Um, but I, just, I just want to comment on that just, for, just briefly, because um, before I move on to the bit where everything went horribly wrong, um, I want to pause on my story and just reflect on s- Psalms like Psalm 16. Um, and I, I guess I want to suggest something a bit strange. After all the things that we've said about... Zeus in the last few weeks, um, Zeus being bad and Abba God being good, that I think that for children a big dose of Zeus in their view of God is not only inevitable but it's kind of uh, a good thing. Um, So this is the kind of sweeping generalisation you can feel free to dismiss out of hand. But um, I I think, and this is part of my wrestling with being a parent, but I I think... Um, for children to have a ridiculously overinflated sense of their parents' ability to protect them from danger is, um, is a necessary thing, that it creates a sense of safety and order that really helps them to thrive. Um, Richard Raw has a, a book called Falling Upwards, which is about a spirituality for the two halves of life, and he talks about... Um, the job of the first half of life is exactly this. It's to have this incredibly strong ego, strong sense of boundaries, impulse control, a sense of kind of safety and order. that those, that those things are a kind of a necessary part of the first half of life. Um, and I say this because I don't want us to beat ourselves up too much for having Zeus as part of our view of God. Um, I think it is... As I say, inevitable and probably necessary part of um, of our childhood, of a childhood first half of life view of God. Um, and I think that's why it's in the Bible um, this this presence of Zeus, the presence of the of the controlling, totally controlling everything is part of God's plan. View of God, and it's not just an old. I'm not saying it's an Old Testament versus New Testament thing, because uh, Zeus is in the New Testament as well. Um, and I think it's because the Bible is not. It's not a manifesto outside of time about okay, here's here's the perfect picture of God. But just like our own lives, the story of the Bible is a story of an evolving, a developing relationship with God, um, and like any story. Like any relationship, there's, there's character development. There's a deepening understanding as the relationship goes on, as a people, as a person grows up. Um, and also, as with any, any story, there are profoundly different perspectives on the truth of the main characters. Uh, Susie and I have just been watching um, Seven Types of Ambiguity, which is a series on the ABC um, based on an Elliot Perlman novel, and it's just a beautiful illustration of exactly this: that from from different perspectives, the the behaviour, the actions of of someone can look so profoundly different um, and be interpreted in such profoundly different ways. Um, so, so I think Israel, like all of us, needed some Zeus early on, Uh, but just as in the case of our own relationship with our parents, what might be necessary for us to grow up can become an obstacle to actually becoming a grown-up. Ultimately, we, like Israel, need to learn to let go of Zeus, This is what Shane was saying two weeks ago. Um, But we need to acknowledge that it's an incredibly painful process to do this to let go of a God who controls everything, which is why so many people refuse to do it. Um, And why, perhaps always, I don't know, but why often it takes a profound experience of suffering to do it, to let go of this God. Are there any, I'm going to get back to my story in a second, the the, the terrible bit, but um, are there any comments so far? Any thoughts? <laughs> Lots of furrowed brows. I'd like to say it'll all be all right in the end, but it might not be. Ah yes, Josh.
3: Um it may it kinda of makes sense in the sense that my childhood like wise was kind of, I had a very Zeus-like God kind of presented to me. Um, But, you know, just kind of thinking about the process of like unraveling that idea of God was, and I feel like this has been discussed in both prayer testimonies and over the series is like, is a rejection against how damaging that idea of God can be for often minority people groups and things like that. Um, so it's kind of like the the tension I'm feeling um, is is the benefit of, you know, like sure, surely there's a way of navigating giving children order and structure that doesn't have to come with scapegoating or, or, or an idea of God that let's say isn't kind of like queer inclusive or isn't um doesn't see women as having equal gifts with men, kind of thing like that. Um, and yeah, I know. Like, I suppose that's a question. Is like, it'd be lovely if there was a way of like having this ordered, like, you know, structured in how much God loves everyone. You know what I mean? Like, yeah.
0: One of the great things that Richard Raw talks about is um, that kind of the first half of life is characterized by binary thinking, um, and I think. That's a perfect example of it that um, in, if you have a God like Zeus, if you have a God of I'm okay, God looks after me, but not necessarily other people, then um, to some extent I think that is inevitable. I think we can bring up our kids to say maybe have a, have a healthier idea of who that other is. Maybe it is the powerful or the exploitative or all that kind of stuff rather than the weak um, and the exploited. So there are, in, in a sense, there are healthier ways of doing that. There are healthier forms of Zeus, and I think I think we need to do that. And I think we need to weave. Like for me, my goal as a parent is to weave love, if that love covers over a multitude of sins. Thing to weave love into that, knowing that knowing that they have, um, they, they, it's inevitable that they have this sense of, of a god of control. But that if that is also a loving god, then it, then you are equipping them to make that later journey um where you just understand the complexity and you you understand the need for letting go of control and for powerlessness and all of that so i think it's not you have to set it up as a simplistic you raise your kids as fascist and then they you know like it's not it's not it's not like that i agree and i think there are there are um being a parent and being a god i assume is an incredibly complex art form um in terms of the nuance of that. But I guess all all I'm really trying to say is that I think there is, for kids to grow up in a healthy way, they need to have perhaps a completely overinflated sense of, of control and safety. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, I've listened to a bit of Richard Raw's second, like, two halves of life stuff, and I think what really got me is how do you, how do you bring in that, or, like, how do you feed someone the first half of life stuff without, like, I remember I I listened to it and I just got really angry. I'm like, well, like, have I just been lied to this first part of my life? And, like, yeah, it was kind of this how do you, um, I don't know. Feed someone something that you know isn't the whole truth, but that it's deeper without lying. If that makes sense? Yeah. I think
0: possibly the answer is what Susie's saying, that it, it's not about giving this to kids. It's not about going, okay, for you to be healthy, you need to think this way. It's just the way they think. Like, so it's, not a, it's, not a, it's about going, okay, this is, this is inevitable. There's nothing that I can do about this because of where they are in their lives. But yes, from the get-go, I can weave into that a sense of greater complexity. I can always um, seek to represent the other to them um, because kids will always create this sense of good and bad. And, and so yes, I think from the from the very beginning, we can represent um, what Jesus reveals to them, uh, that sense of. Of the dignity of the other, and that these good, bad binaries that we create um, that can be so destructive, so I don't think it's a matter of of intentionally giving that to kids, but just recognizing it's there, that's how they process things, and we weave stuff in there, yeah, I get Alan and then Tamsin.
4: Um. that being the case, if they're going to develop that sort of binary sense of right and wrong and good and bad and everything else. Isn't there a better structure we can teach them around that than it being than God? Like, isn't there a less screwed up metaphor we can put in put in place? Um, Obviously, it's quite relevant to me at the moment. And um, going, well, yeah, they're going to get a sense of right and wrong, good and bad, and everything else. But surely, there's something better we can point at them. Going, yes, well, this is God, and if you know, yeah, if God doesn't look after you, it's because you're bad. Surely there's a there's a more we could, some, something that is still just as black and white and just as yeah binary that we can put in that field that doesn't require so much unlearning and screwing yourself up later on in life.
0: Good idea. <laughs> <laughs>
1: people having different challenges and kids working things out. and So they do it everywhere and it's just a very slow process of learning that things are much more complex and much more nuanced. And you can teach them things in a nuanced way, but they're not necessarily capable of understanding them until later. So I guess that's the thing. If they're going to naturally create binaries, you just try and weave in the more nuanced stuff and they may not be able to take that on early, but then later on Perhaps they're able to assimilate that in a way that gives them a, a richer and more, yeah, a more real understanding of how things are. If that makes sense. I haven't got anything so deep. But all, all I come and say is that here is my daughter standing next to me in church, and I'm just proud to be here with her. And we've grown up together, learning about God and. I used to pray over her quietly at night time because I didn't know what I was going to do. And she's helped me and she helps me. And we're both growing together still.
0: Steph. This is a great illustration of letting go of control. So my five-minute aside has turned into the main part of the talk, but that's all right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, just, um, Veronica, just in thinking... I was working um, at a youth Christian program called Year in the Sun, which was kind of 18 to 22-year-olds, um, a really interesting program of introducing a lot of grey or introducing a lot of non-binary thinking. And so interesting to watch this kind of this opportunity to, to intentionally introduce all of this and to see that for some kids that was a really destructive thing to do. Like it, the they were still in a binary space and that new information threw them off their path and for some it was exactly what they needed and the complicated place of being an authority figure in that space of do you just keep teaching the kids that you're watching not handle it? Um, and I, I love that idea of what um, was presented before of just kind of this, sometimes you introduce it and, and let people wrestle and but it's, it's a, always a complicated process of ha- at what stage do you throw in the complicated stuff um, once you've been in a different space. It's just a complicated process of watching, observing and kindness and love and and sometimes coming back to binary and the kind of in and out of it all, not just being here it is half of it and here's the other half and you're not quite in it. At age 21 you jump the gun and now you're in second half and it's a really complicated wrestle I think.
5: Yeah. Just on exactly that, I think some some of it's... Like, I think a great example of this is burglars. Your children going, is someone going to break into our house? At a particular age, safety matters more. So saying, giving them actual crime statistics and saying, at the moment, there are people roaming the streets looking for somewhere to break into. And I can't rule out the possibility they might not break into the house, climb through your window, you know, and attack you. For a three-year-old, that's actually not what they're ready to hear and so finding another way of protecting them but being able to subvert that as they can grow into the knowledge that they need i think is really really important um yeah i I grew up in a in a household that said christians don't lie but we lie all the time and necessary necessary lying
0: (laughs) thanks everyone um, um, cool. So sit with all that, everyone, and then come with me on a, on a little journey. So you'll be sitting and coming at the same time. I don't know how that will work. But, um, so anyway, things unraveled for me. Um, my partner who'd been struggling with depression for a long time, that just got worse and worse she started to distance herself from family um then friends then um from god and um then one day she told me that she'd been having an affair with someone for a few months and um it was a revelation that just completely destroyed me um because i didn't just feel betrayed by her i felt betrayed by god I felt a complete and utter fool that all my faithfulness to God had been for absolutely nothing, had been some kind of sick joke. Um, and there was also a profound sense of, of humiliation. Um, there'd been some kind of... We'd had some sexual issues in our relationship that I'd always prayerfully hoped would, would re- resolve themselves ultimately um, and for the, the resolution to be that she... Uh, found a way through her sexual issues with someone else um, felt like the most ultimate humiliation and kick in the guts. Um, So, needless to say, I was a mess for a very, very, very long time. Um, Quite tormented. Um, About nine months later, I... We'd booked some, before our marriage fell apart, we'd sort of booked some tickets to go around the world and we'd paid a deposit which was non-refundable and I'm quite thrifty. So I didn't want to see that money wasted. So I decided I'll go on an overseas trip myself, alone. What's the worst thing that can happen, travelling alone when you're in grief? Um, And the first night of my trip, I was in a uh, hostel in San Francisco Just the first night had this incredibly profound sense of what a, what a big mistake I'd made. Um, so lonely, so incapable of making any connection with anyone. And it was like 8.30 or something like that. I'm just going to bed. I can't, I, I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to go to bed. So I went into my dorm room and I lay down in my bed um, and I started to pray. And I said to God that I couldn't, I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't cope with the grief, with the rage, with the humiliation that God somehow needed to cut me some slack, to do something, to help me. And I remember just as I was finishing with my plea for God to start to heal me, to heal my deep sexual woundedness, to heal my humiliation, one of my dorm mates brought a girl into the room thinking that there was no one else in there because it was very early and proceeded to have loud sex with her on the floor right next to me. Tamsin's now going to read Psalm 44.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Rod. Um Psalm 44. O oh God, we heard with our own ears our ancestors told us all the things you did in their days, in the days of old. Your hand drove out the nations and planted them instead. You crushed the peoples. You made the forebears take root. It was not our ancestors' swords that won them the land, not their arm that gave them the victory, but your mighty hand and your arm, the light of your presence and your love for them. You are my ruler, my God. At your bidding, the children of Israel are victorious. Through you we push back our enemies. In your name we march over our adversaries. I won't trust in my bow, nor will my sword win me the victory. But it is you who makes us victorious over our enemies and puts our foes to shame. We boast about you all day long, O oh God, and will praise your name forever. But now you've rejected and chastised us and no longer lead our armies into battle. You made us retreat before our enemy and our foes pillage freely. You've abandoned us to be butchered like sheep and scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people off for a pittance and did not consider them of much value. You have made us the mockery of our neighbours, the scorn and the contempt of those around us. You've made us an example, a warning for the nations and an object of ridicule among the peoples. I brood on my disgrace all day long and the shame on my face is exposed to all as my enemies assail me with taunts and abuse and take their revenge on me. Every possible indignation has befallen us, even though we didn't forget or betray your covenant. We have not gone back on our word, nor did our feet stray from your path. Yet you've broken us and thrust us in the pit of jackals and covered us with a death pool. If we had forgotten the name of Yahweh or spread your hands in prayer to a God we've never known... Wouldn't you have discovered it, Yahweh, since you know the hidden recesses of our heart? Because of you, we face the bloodbath all day long and are treated as sheep for slaughter. Wake up. Why do you sleep, Yahweh? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why did you turn your face from us and ignore our misery and oppression? We're fallen down in the dust and we're lying in the dirt. Arise and come to our help. Ransom us in your great love.
0: I love it that there are psalms like that. I think just as, um, before we said that, you know, Psalms like Psalm 16 kind of affirm the fact that it, it's okay um, at times in our life to have this Zeus idea of God. Um, I think Psalms like this affirm the fact that it's okay for us when we think that God does not exist or feels completely absent or that God is cruel beyond belief. Now, if if anyone had told me that at that point, had told me that this this was a necessary part of my spiritual journey, um, I would have punched them in the face, and I would have been right to do so, (laughs) because for me in that moment, God had been revealed as non-existent or completely absent or cruel beyond belief. But... From this perspective, 20-so years down the track, I I realized that it was a necessary part of my spiritual journey. I can see that very clearly now, ripping holes in my soul through which God's spirit could enter. A uh, going cold turkey on Zeus. But what's also very important to say, uh, I feel like we've said this a few times, but it's just important to underline that it doesn't mean that I think what was happening was part of God's plan. That's the behavior of Zeus, the Zeus that was fatally wounded that night. I'm convinced that God was there, but not making it happen. I don't even think that God was there to, to give it any kind of meaning, because that kind of experience is ultimately meaningless, tragic, and absurd. But as Shane said two weeks ago, God was still there standing with me, grieving with me. Not that I felt even the tiniest shred of God's presence at the time. And this is also very important to say. Um, Auschwitz survivor Ellie Wiesel, who wrote the Auschwitz memoir, Night, said that Auschwitz makes no sense with God and that Auschwitz makes no sense without God. Auschwitz makes no sense with God and Auschwitz makes no sense without God. And for me, this was a moment like that, a moment that it was impossible to believe in God in that moment and it was impossible to survive it without God. When Jesus called out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't reading from a script. He was truly and completely forsaken, desolate and engulfed in meaninglessness and despair, and yet he still called out to God even as he felt completely abandoned by God. But I think it's really important that if anyone tells you that the gospel just makes sense, um, that the cross is some kind of simple rational exchange, they don't understand either the gospel or the cross I don't know if this will be helpful to you, and I apologize if it isn't, but um, in an interview I listened to this week with a theologian called Jean-Pierre Fortin, um, that's where I got the Elie Wiesel quote from, um, he talked about the cross as an experience of being plunged out of the daylight into pitch black night and having to sit alone, God forsaken in the darkness until slowly Slowly, the light of the stars starts to shine. Um, Sam, can you give can that verse that just from Josh's song? That, um, if you still got it. Yeah, I just I was really struck by this verse um, because it, in a sense, it articulates the same kind of image um, of the light of the gospel being starlight, a light that exists in the context of night. To me, I think the light of Zeus is its not daylight. It's, it's more than that. It's a dazzling light that, that casts no shadow. There is no shadow. There's no darkness in the light of Zeus. But the light of the Abba God is starlight, a constant twinkling of hope and healing in the context of darkness in the context of sadness. Last week Shane said that for Jesus, prayer is inviting God into a relationship and joining with God is not an act of magic. Paul says that God prays to God through us. We're drawn into the self-emptying dance of the Trinity. I think that reading the Bible, living your faith in the starlight that exists the other side of the cross, can often look very similar to living your faith in the light of Zeus. Um, but But they're so different. Shane quoted Greg Boyd last week saying that magical prayer and biblical prayer often look very similar, but but are profoundly different. I'm going to get Susie to come up now and uh, to read a poem that I think really sums up what it means to live uh, a life of hope in the context of the cross, in the context of sadness. It's by... Let me find it. Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Kindness.
1: Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend.
0: Any comments before we just got a little bit more before we finish? But any reflections on the poem? Or I know some of the things, the images that we're using can seem quite intangible, but I hope they make sense. I just want to finish again with the Bible and. what it means to read the Bible in the light of the stars rather than the light of Zeus, um, in the light of what Richard Raw calls bright sadness through the lens that Jesus provides in his death on the cross. I don't think reading the Bible in the light, in this kind of starlight, means ignoring any part of it. It just means that the Bible might be telling us different things as it must if it's truly a living Thing, a living word. The poet T.S. Eliot in his poem, Little Gidding, has this beautiful line. You're probably familiar with it, or you might be anyway. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. In the light of the cross, Psalm 16, the psalm that we started with, becomes an outrageous statement of hope rather than a naive statement of control. Psalm 16 is the psalm that Peter, the Apostle Peter, uses in his Pentecost sermon to talk about Jesus' resurrection, that David, rather than making some statement of kingly privilege, is prophesying Jesus' resurrection from the dead, rather than being a statement of divine daylight it is a prophecy of starlight hope the other side of death and in the light of the cross Psalm 44 which was the second psalm that we read becomes an Easter Saturday psalm one that we can pray when we are in that place of meaninglessness when God seems so very far away from us but at other times it can be a psalm that we pray in the light of the resurrection as Paul does in Romans 8. Um, so I'm just going to get, you'll be relieved this is a shorter passage, I'm just going to get Tanson to read this last passage from Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8, 35 to
2: 39. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Calamity? Persecution? Hunger? Nakedness? Danger? Violence? As the scripture says, for your sake we're being killed all day long, we're looked upon as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet in all this we are more than conquerors because of God who has loved us. For I am certain that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that comes with us in Christ Jesus, our Saviour.
0: This is not hallmark spirituality. This is a trust in love in the context of death, persecution, being slaughtered daily. It's just such an, an astonishing move for Paul to quote Psalm 44 as a way of showing that nothing can separate us from god's love and yet that that is to me a starlight move that's a starlight reading of the old testament of the psalms saul who encountered jesus on the road to damascus was struck blind <laughs> had no idea what was happening had to be led by his followers to damascus to wait how long he did not know. This is not a man who believes in Zeus. This is a man who proclaims that nothing can separate us from the love of the Abba God. Are there any final comments before we finish any th- any other reflections i'll give you a minute that's okay mm. so after shane's talk from 2 weeks ago and this week if you're sitting there thinking okay, I understand what you're saying, that we need to give up Zeus, but I still don't quite get what we're meant to give up Zeus for, then don't worry, we're getting there. I mean, I I hope that two weeks ago and this week you've got some strong hints already, Um, but there will be more. Uh, In the meantime, if you can't wait, I would recommend you listening to... um, Kat Sitkovich likes to refer to her as K-Tip. Uh Krista Tippen interviewing Richard Raw on the podcast On Being. So it's like from a week or two ago. It's amazing. So good, says Susie. And she hates God. Um and if you have more time, uh, yeah, have a have a crack at Falling Upward by Richard Raw. Um for communion, uh I'm gonna invite you forward to take a little bit of cracker and have a bit of juice. And we're going to listen to um, a song by uh, a guy called Moses Sumney. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, it's called, I thought it's just perfect for today because it's called Incantation. So it smacks of magic. Um, but it's a combination of two Jewish prayers. Uh, the first prayer is the, the first part of what's called the Kedusha. Um, and it's a quote from Isaiah. So the translation is "Holy, holy, holy, the Lord of hosts." The entire world is filled with your glory. And the second half of the song is um, kind of a nighttime, a Jewish nighttime prayer for protection, um, where he asks the the prayer asks God and four angels and the Shekinah, which is the female presence of God, to surround bed at night time and to protect them. I thought it was kind of a perfect, it's it's beautiful, um, and it could easily, that kind of sentiment can easily be seen as a kind of naive trust in a controlling God that can protect us from everything, and yet there is so much sadness and beauty woven into the song itself. So I thought it was a nice representation of what we've been talking about to finish with. So as we listen, come forward, get a little bit of cracker and juice, and then um, we will eat and drink together at the end of the song, and I'll say a benediction, and we'll be done. Okay, thanks, Sam. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, kids, for the morning tea, which is not there yet, but it's going to appear like the loaves and fishes in a second. Um, The benediction is also from that T.S. Eliot poem, Little Gidding. Um, It's just a single line. And all will be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Amen.